have theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy, which is horrible, right? On the other side, you have the people who say, ah, forget about theology, I just want to praise, right? But if you have doxology without theology, you actually have idolatry. Morning. How's everybody doing? Good, all right. Nice. I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. Uh, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. And I've been waiting roughly eight months to preach this sermon. Um, and so in order to explain uh, why today for me is such a big deal and, and the start of this series in Ephesians 4, I'm going to have to go way back and give you some backstory uh, to a point where actually some of you probably won't even hear. And so I'm going to take you back uh, four and a half years. This church is the, uh, the, the, the fruit of a merger between two churches. And um, the thing about mergers is they're really easy. No feelings ever get hurt. And everything goes smoothly. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, on the heels of trying to figure out uh, emerging two churches, um, one with an average age of 28 and one with an average age of 58, because that's going to go great, uh, we headed into just this incredibly politically divisive season in the life of our country. And uh, you, you, you can maybe recall some of those events. There's George Floyd. Um, we had multiple protests. We had violent protests. We went into a political season uh, with an election that was very peaceful and everyone was happy with the results. Uh, and no one argued. And um, if that weren't enough, we had this little uh, two-week span to flatten the curve that lasted two years. We remember this as well. Um, but the good thing is we were all in agreement with how to handle it. And um, coming through that, you know, we, roughly three and a half, uh, closing it on four years of what just felt like constant uh, storm after storm after storm. And we got to August of 2021, and we actually were fairly hopeful that the storms and the really rough patches were in the rearview mirror. And then I got to sit down and find out that my uh, best friend and mentor of eight years was going to abruptly resign as the senior pastor of the church. Um, surprise. And so I, I distinctly remember, this is about eight, nine months ago, uh, sitting in my office. And, and have you ever, and many of you probably experienced this at some point or sat with someone that's experienced this where you've, you've lost a loved one abruptly. Someone died in a car accident. Uh, died of a, a violent or just surprising act, lost a spouse, lost a child, lost a, a loved one, just quickly, and you're just sitting there like this. And you're shell-shocked. There's not another word for it. You're not even at the grieving process yet because you're still processing if you're even asking the right questions. And I remember just sitting in my office for a while going, how did we get here? And as I uh, sat and had some very um, R-rated conversations with God, you've probably had some of those, it's all right. Um, I remember just in, in conversations with God going, what, what's next? Why are we here? What, what do we do? Where do we go? I, I, I'm clearly unqualified to even answer a single one of these questions. And I just remember God uh, very graciously over the course of about a month saying, listen, this church 
is going to have to start from the very beginning and learn what it is that you as a church want to be, what type of legacy you want to have, what type of culture you want to have, what type of priorities should be at top priority in your church. And here's the great thing about that, Daniel, is uh, none of them are going to listen if you go and preach that right now because everyone's hurting and grieving and dealing with this. So you're going to need to do all this stuff, but not yet. Not yet. And so... uh, I believe that the Bible is very clear on what is preeminent in terms of the prioritization of the church, why it's so critical, why you can't be uh, a Jesus lover but not love the church. Everyone's had that friend, right? Man, I really love Jesus. I just don't love the church. You ever met that guy? Yeah? They don't read their Bible. Let me just be honest with you. They're, they're, They're reading parts, right? They're proofreading text. Uh, because there's no separation of loving Jesus and loving his bride. That's just the way the Bible works. And uh, the Bible's actually really clear. In Ephesians 4, it's going to just walk through what this thing is supposed to look like and what should be of top priority in our lives and the lives of our church. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to just lay it out for us. And I remember God saying, like, it's right there, but no one's going to listen. Thanks! <laughs> so we said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start in Ephesians 1. And we're going to spend eight months... And we're going to just slowly go through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 so that at some point when the church has gotten over the grieving and has gotten over the shell shock and has gotten over the COVID and has gotten over the election and has gotten over the merger and has gotten over the senior pastor leaving and has gotten over whether or not they actually love one each other or not, which is kind of a big deal in the church. Then we can open up the word and take a look at what it is we're going to be about. And so we've titled this uh, Teach Me How to Church because we really want to open up the word of God and, and ask, are we doing this right? Because there's a, are there not a lot of opinions about how to do church? Man, and if you haven't heard it, just ask somebody. They got a whole host of ways you should be doing this. In fact, man, they're, they're, should you dress up for church? Should you dress down for church? Should you be loud in worship? Should you be quiet in worship? Why are there even drums? We don't even need those things. I think they're from Satan. I mean, Right? You hear, you've heard it all. Why don't we stand up and sit down? Why don't we have chants? Why do we have chants? Do we have hymns? Can you, are you even allowed to sing songs that weren't written more than 100 years ago? Are there not a lot of opinions about how to do church? So how do you pick? How do you, how do you know which one's right? How do you know which one's important? Like, we're just going to open up the word and say, hey, God, what's important? Because he tells us. It's a great thing about the Bible. If you'll read it, it's weird that there's a lot of stuff in it. Ephesians 4.1, we're going to do one verse today. One verse. That's all we can handle. Next week, spoiler alert, Ephesians 4.2. One verse. That's all you can handle. Trust me, there's a lot there. And so um, we're going to talk today about what your legacy is. I, I want to talk to you about your legacy. I want to talk to you about this church's legacy. I want to talk to you about your family's legacy. I want to talk to you about your obituary. It's going to be really lighthearted today. But it's going to be good. Now, there's a movie that... Um, I, I think all of you have seen it. If you haven't seen it, you hate America. It's called Saving Private Ryan. Right? Come on. It's a movie about World War II with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks doesn't make bad movies, amen? Point taken. Okay. 
Saving Private Ryan is this movie about a story where there's a, there's a soldier in World War II and three of his brothers, his three brothers have died in the war all sort of suddenly and the government finds out that the last remaining brother is actually on the front in World War II and so he's of course in danger of dying and they don't want the public relations hit, the PR hit of him dying and, and a mother losing four sons to the war. And so they send a whole company of soldiers in to get him and uh, most of them die trying to save this one guy who hasn't done anything good, he just happens to be the one remaining son. And uh, near the end of the movie, another one of the soldiers in the company is dying after all these other company uh, soldiers have died just to save this one guy. And he grabs hold of Matt Damon, who's the soldier, and he pulls him close as he's dying. And he looks at him and he says, earn this. This sacrifice, all these people that died for you, go live a life worthy of it. Ephesians 4.1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I therefore, I therefore, so the Apostle Paul only uses therefore to connect and bridge in his letters these transitions that he is famous for. So what he loves to do is he loves to start in the, um, in, in the principles, right? The, the principles of the faith, and he'll, he'll build a case, and then he transitions into the practical, or he'll, he'll just sit in sort of the academic, theological, and then he'll go from academic to application, or he'll be in the doctrine, and he gets to the, the duty, or... Uh, think of it as, as starting in the library to do all of your research and then moving to the laboratory in order to, to, to figure it out. And, and, and for the Apostle Paul, that happens when he says, therefore. And, and he does this in a bunch of his letters, not just in Ephesians. He does this in Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, and he's connecting 12, there are 11 chapters of this and then starting into the application. He does it in Galatians 5.1. He does it in Colossians 3.1. He says, therefore, and it's a big connector to say, look back at what has been established. Look at the foundation, and based on the foundation, now go over here. Now, why does that matter? Well, because a lot happened in the first three chapters. We spent like three series, three whole sermon series, just walking through those three chapters because of how in-depth they are. In those three chapters, the Apostle Paul has established that you and I, if we were saved by Jesus Christ, you and I were chosen before the foundation of the earth, that before the earth was formed, before we get to the very first sentences in the Bible, Jesus knew you and chose you. Before any of this creation, Jesus knew you. He knew how incredibly dumb you'd be. He knew me, and he chose me anyway. Then he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters of the king. Then he redeemed us. That means he bought us with a price, his blood. Forgave us, established for us as a son or a daughter of the king an inheritance that we didn't deserve, sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and promised to us eternal life. Now that's just part of what happened in chapters one, two, and three. But this is all being established as a foundation for the Apostle Paul. He's saying, remember, remember. In fact, the only thing, they're called uh, in, imperatives. Uh, there are 41 imperatives in Ephesians. There's only one imperative in the first three chapters, and it's remember. All of this stuff that he's gonna tell you. Remember, 
Remember that you're chosen. Remember that you were predestined. Remember that you've been adopted by the king. Remember that you're a child of the king. Remember the redemption, the forgiveness, the inheritance, the Holy Spirit. Remember you have been promised eternal life. Remember. Therefore is where we're headed. Why? Because after the therefore, we're going to go from one imperative in the first three chapters to 40 imperatives in the next three chapters. 40 things. Because the, the foundation, what, what Paul does with this theological set of truths is he builds a foundation big enough to build the kingdom on top of. He doesn't build a little puny foundation. You see, a little puny foundation only works if you have a little puny shanty, a little, little shack you're going to build on that. But we were promised a kingdom. And so that foundation has to be broad and deep and strong and stable and impressive. And so there's three chapters of truths about the kingdom and about Christ and about God to build now this structure on top of. It will, the first three chapters, establish for you and I the authority, the ability, and the ambition of this promised work. The authority, the ability, and the ambition. What do I mean by the authority? What, what is the authority? Well, in Romans 6, 14, it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but are under grace. John 1, 12 says, but to all who did receive him. So everyone who's been saved by Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's the authority. You're not a slave to sin anymore. What's been established in the first three chapters is you now have authority over sin through Christ. You now are not in bondage to sin and your flesh. You're not dead to sin anymore. You have authority. Now, I want you to imagine why this has such implications on all the imperatives that are going to come. If you are a son of the king, you're a prince. If you're a daughter of the king, you're a princess. Now, I don't mean your little Instagram princess stuff. Not that. I mean, you now walk in spiritual authority, no longer trapped in sin. So, you, so, so what we're going to see is live like it. You, 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 don't, you don't get adopted by the king and then go back to living a life of poverty on the streets. Why would you? All you're saying is that I don't understand what, what, what my new status, my new authority. So we have an authority that is established in these chapters because of what God has done and because he's adopted us and made us heirs. The ability, the empowerment, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Ephesians 3.16 says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. All of the 40 things that Paul's gonna tell us that we're gonna study over a, a whole three four different series, summer series, are impossible to do without the power of the Spirit. There's not one thing that you're going to find in the next three chapters that, that you could just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Like you're just going to will it and make it happen, right? They are impossible things. Every one of the 40 requires a miracle called the Holy Spirit. And if you try to do it on your own, it's going to be really embarrassing. 
it's gonna look really religious and not very genuine. And the ambition, so the authority, the ability to do it, and the ambition, meaning the motivation to actually do it, the the, the desire to even go and live out this Christian life is only because of what God is doing in us. 2 Corinthians 9 15 says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Galatians 2.20 would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is this expressing? The motivation now to pursue Jesus and walk out this Christian life is one of gratitude. I live this way because of what's been done because of the foundation built in Christ. The authority, the ability, the ambition for this walk. Now, all of these things in our life, which have been established in chapters one through three, can be distorted and are often distorted in the church, the authority. Now, I just want you to think about this, okay? You, you, you're a son or a daughter of the king. That means you have authority over everything that God has now put under Christ's dominion and because of that under your dominion. I, I, think about it this way. Um, you, you win the lottery, $300 million dollars, and you're like, cool, and you go back to living in the, the shack or, or in the homeless and, and scrounging for, for scraps in the dumpsters. And people are like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I just I don't know how I'm going to eat today. We would look at that person and be like, <laughs> we have some things to say. They're choice words. I won't say them up here. Um, but let me summarize. It would sound something like this. Are you insane? You want $300 million. You're the son of a king. Why would you do the, because you don't understand what you've been given. You don't understand the gift. You don't understand the authority that you've been given. You don't understand the spirit that he put in you. We don't, we walk in authority in the Christian life, even though there's all sorts of trials in it, it's in authority because of Christ. To want to go back to the way we lived before Jesus is insanity. It's, it's a misunderstanding of what he's given us. It's a dog going back to its own vomit. The ability can be distorted. The empowerment, listen, spiritual fruit that is going to be produced in us as we pursue Jesus Christ is Christ's work in us. So, so there's no way that you and I can manufacture transformation. Do you understand? You can't fake it. That whole fake it till you make it doesn't actually work in the Christian life. Like if you produce plastic apples, they'll never taste like apples. They'll never smell like apples. You, you can't artificially produce spiritual fruit. That's why a list of morals never works. So, so when you hear someone say, we just got to get the the Ten Commandments back in school, that'll fix the problem. Really? Did it fix the problem in the Old Testament? Because I feel like they had the Ten Commandments. In fact, it was like the death penalty if you didn't follow it. And they still didn't follow it. You think your kindergartner's going to do it? You don't follow the Ten Commandments. They're not going to do it either. A list of morals never works. All a list of rules ever does is show you how fall, how, how short you're going to fall, right? Like how far away you actually are from the standard. That's all the rules do. 
You don't need a list of morals. You don't need a, a religious list that says, man, if you can just check all these boxes, then it's going to work. It'll never work. Let me just help you now. That, that, that's why um, you, you go to a marriage conference, right? Or you go to a, a retreat, uh, a women's retreat, men's retreat, you know, some sort of spiritual retreat uh, for the youth. You know, you go to camp and you come back on that spiritual high from camp. And you're like, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it for God now. Like, like I come back from the marriage. I'm going to be a good husband, but I serve my wife. I'm just going to, I'm going to be, oh, I'm going to, it lasts like two days. And then it's punk, right? Why? Because of your own effort, you're never going to get there. If you believe that spiritual transformation and spiritual maturity is somehow you gritting your teeth and just getting it done, you misunderstand what's happening in the Bible and in the gospel. Disconnected from Christ, separated from his spirit, nothing ever happens. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That's why the Rambo Christian that just runs out there and is like, I'm going to get out of here. I don't need the people of the church. What are you talking about? Man, I'll be lucky to make it out of this building through the doors to my car door without the Holy Spirit. We, we are created for dependency on God and everything apart from him is just an utter mess. My puny little attempts at holiness are comical on my own. They're dumb. They're useless. We have to press into Christ or else we're going to distort this whole idea of how this Christian life works. And then the, the ambition has to be right. The, the motivation for this Christian life has to be right. Listen, you don't even, I don't even want the things of God until God makes me want the things of God. Like that's how bad my motivation is. Like you, my prayer is not that I would do all these amazing things for God. My prayer is that I would just want the things that God wants me to want. And, and, and if I'm being uh, really blunt, American Christianity gets this wrong the most because what American, American Christianity tells us in most of our churches, for some reason, it, it tells us this. <clears throat> if you'll do some uh, biblical things, some religious things. Maybe it's uh, serve here, show up here. Uh, maybe it's give this or whatever. If you'll do these things, then God will fulfill your plan, right? Everybody's got a plan. We got a plan. Like in my mind, I got a plan. I'm gonna have this kind of job. I'm gonna make this kind of money. I'm gonna have this type of relationship. I'm gonna have this many kids. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna retire at this age. I'm gonna earn so much money. I'm gonna be seen this way about uh, by other people. And, and then I'm gonna retire at this age. I'm gonna have an RV and I'm gonna have a boat. And uh, right, we all got plans. And here's what happens in American Christianity because things are so comfortable here. Um, we look at our plan and if things are going according to our plan, we go, well, I must be doing good by God's standards because my plan's going good. And then when it's not happening and we're off plan, we go, oh, I must have done something wrong and I better get back into church a little bit more and I'll just give a little bit more tithe and then like, God will bless that. Let me be really clear. Your plan is crap. Your plan is crap. My plan is crud. You know Why? It's my plan. I can't think my way out of a paper box, man. You don't want me in charge. My plan is bad. It's terrible. When I submitted my life to God, the whole point of the submission was I was saying, my plans really stink. I'm going to need your plan. And just because things start going a little bit better doesn't mean it's your plan again. 
God's not here. God's not even really concerned with your happiness, guys. He's concerned with your holiness, which leads to real contentment instead of just this, this weird comfort happiness thing. And, and, and too often, like we see these stories in the Bible, right? Where Jesus is walking around and there's people that like see the power and they, and they see what he's doing and there's some interest, but there's not interest in submitting to Jesus. It's just kind of in the, in the effect and impact of his power. And so they'll go to him and they want his miracles or they want his blessing, but they don't want him. And that's American church. American church says, I want his power and I want his blessing and I want the comfort, but I don't want him. Don't disturb me. Don't change my plan, just make my plan happen. Most of us, let me just submit this to you. This is where we, we just have, we've lost it. We just lost our minds. Most of us in here, if I asked you one-on-one, would say, of course Jesus is real, right? In fact, most of the people that you meet outside the church that don't even go to church, if you ask them, they believe in God. They do, they believe he's real. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is real. Even the demons believe he's real. Real faith is believing he's right. It's not enough to believe that he's real. You have to believe that he's right. And if he's right, you're wrong. And if he's right, it's his plan. And if he's right and it's his plan, it ain't your plan. And if he's right and it's his plan and it's not your plan, then the effort and the energy that you're putting into your plan, you better check your heart because you may put in a lot of energy to a plan that you already know is dead. It's not enough to simply believe that God is real, that Jesus is real, or that he walked this earth. The actual act of submission, the salvific faith that is required to be saved is you believe he's right, which means handing over the authority of your life to him. And that foundation is built in the first three chapters of Ephesians so that we can get to Ephesians 4.1, therefore. So now that I've used 30 minutes to preach one word, we're going to move on. Told you, it's going to take some time. A prisoner of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> this phrase in this verse is completely unnecessary. Paul has already introduced himself in the letter. He already started the sentence with I, therefore, and he could have easily said, I, therefore, to link all of what he's written already and say, urge you and just moved on. But he adds in this phrase, a prisoner of the Lord, to remind you that he is writing this letter from prison and that his imprisonment, his um, uh, torture that he will end up going through, his trials he will end up going through, the uh, tribulation that Paul will suffer, the martyrdom that he will eventually suffer, every bit of that suffering is absolutely worth it to him if you will just be able to get your mind around how good God is and how much he wants to do in your life. He will be beaten, he will be shipwrecked, he will be stoned and he will be killed. And he says, I want you to know it's worth it. If you will just come to realize what God has in store for you, if you will simply walk out this faith. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I urge you, I don't command you. I urge you, I 
pleading with you. I'm begging with you. I'm encouraging, exhorting. I am, it, it is breaking my heart. It is, the, it is the prodigal son and the father. I can't make you love Jesus, but in every fiber of my being, I want to see you come to fulfillment in Christ and watch what he's going to do through you as he changes you and transforms you and impacts the broken world through you because he chose to. And I just want you to see that. And if you could just see that, it'd be worth dying for. I urge you. This is why as we proclaim and preach the gospel, we don't sit around and and condemn people. We don't scream at them about how terrible they are. We're terrible too. I know how terrible they are because I know how terrible I am. It's not a condemnation. It is inviting you to something better. It is inviting you to something greater. It is inviting you to actual peace urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, Paul loves to use the illustration of walking. Now, one of the reasons that he loves to use that illustration is that everybody walked in the first century. You didn't have cars, you didn't have bicycles, and most of them actually didn't ride animals either. They walked. Walking was the most normal, like standard. I mean, just everybody walked. Everybody gets this. This is what we do every single day. We walk miles a day. So walking's normal. Hill's going to use, Paul's going to use walking eight times in the book of Ephesians. He uses it 33 times in his letters. He constantly goes back and and has this idea of walking. Um, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side, walking side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's Philippians 1.27, Colossians 1.10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk. Why is he constantly talking about walking? Well, let me, let me just, the, here's what walking isn't. It's not running, it's not sprinting, it's not jumping or leaping or flying. It's not this incredibly difficult ask. Just take a step forward. Walk, put, a, put one foot in front of another. In fact, I'll submit to you this. In the Christian life, we almost don't even ever know the, the ultimate destination or we don't get to see very far in front of us. Normally, you get to see one step in front of us, the one step that God wants us to take gets illuminated. Scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminate a step forward. We create creates boundaries for where we should go and where we shouldn't go. That's why we have Scripture. We get one forward, step forward, and if you'll take that one step, then Scripture and the Spirit will illuminate the next step, but you don't get to see 10 steps down the road. That's not faith. Take a step forward. You get to walk, not run, not leap, not dunk. Too short. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word worthy in Greek is axios. Uh, It is the root word for axiom. And it it means two equal weights. You you get a scale, you you have weight on one side, you have to balance it on the other side so that they balance. Well, what's on one side? Well, everything in the first three chapters, I mean, it's the the $300 million lotto. It's it's the riches of his grace. It's, It's everything on one side. So, I mean... It's mind-blowing to think what would have to be on the other side of that scale to even it out. It seemed impossible. Much like I would imagine in 
the film, when the character hears earned this, earned the sacrifice of all these soldiers who came and died for me when I didn't even ask them to die for me, like, I, how, how, how? How do I live a life worth that? That's what chapters four through six are going to explain. And we get this word calling. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. Now, uh, in English, calling actually means some different things, right? Depending on how we use it, it has different definitions. Uh, calling could mean uh, when, I, when I'm just calling out to someone, like, hey, you. I'm just yelling at them, calling them. Calling can can be in the Bible sort of this supernatural kind of miracle thing where there's a calling. Calling we use often in, in, in the church context as being some sort of call into ministry, right? A pull, an invitation, a, a compulsion into ministry. So, so what, what does the Bible mean when it says calling? Is it the first, the second, or the third? Yes. It's all three. It's all three. You see, when, when, when Jesus... It, Let's go to the story. When, when Jesus uh, saves Lazarus, everyone remember Jesus raised Lazarus to the dead, right? From the dead. So, so Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. Jesus hears he dies and he actually waits to go because he wants Lazarus to have been dead long enough that everybody knows that he's dead, dead, not mostly dead. Princess Bride reference. You're, you're more holy if you've seen the Princess Bride. Okay. <clears throat> so he lets him go a few days and then when he comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, how does he do it? Does he, uh, may, does he have the Harry Potter wand with Latin words? No. Does he have uh, some fairy dust? You know, like Salt Bay, he just sprinkles it. No, no. Does he put his hands on him? No. What does he do? Calls him. He calls him. He says, Lazarus, come out. Now, let me just ask you something, okay? After service, put you in my car. We're going to drive to the morgue. I'm going to roll a body out, and I'm going to let you call to them and see if they respond. Odds aren't good. Because in the history of this world, there's only been one man who has the power to call life into deadness. And you and I were born dead in our sin. So when Jesus called us, he quite literally called you out of death. He spoke life into existence in Genesis, and he spoke you to life when he called you. That's why he's called the word. You open up John 1.1, what does it say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Because Jesus is the very literal word of God. So your calling is, in a literal sense, Jesus opening his mouth and calling you from dead to life. So it's, a calling is also a supernatural miracle because there ain't nobody else that gets to call dead people. I could take my phone and I could turn it up to an insanely loud volume like some of y'all keep it in church and I'll put it in the pocket of a corpse and bury it and call it and guess what? He ain't answering. Because there's only one and that's Jesus. I was dead. You were dead. Dead men don't hear things and they don't respond to things and they don't answer 
But Jesus' word is alive. That's why he's called the word. So it is a literal calling. It is a supernatural act of Jesus. And then lastly, it is absolutely a calling into ministry. And we know that over and over again in the Bible, but, but especially 1 Peter 2.9 says to you and I, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the ministry workers. It says to anyone who's been called by Jesus' voice, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, you, you probably don't think about that most of the time. You're not dominated by this idea that you've been called into ministry because we say that too much about uh, sort of professional clergy, like a priest or a pastor. Well, that person was called into ministry, you know, but I'm just, my job is, no, 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 no. You were called into a royal priesthood when Jesus called you from death to life. That's your calling. A, a pastor's job is to equip the saints for works of service. Pastors are just here to equip you for your calling. But you have a calling. Now, maybe in the back of your head, you're like, man, I didn't want a calling. I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, you did. You did. You did the moment he put life in your soul. That's what you were created for. Quick confession time. When I was a kid, the one thing, the one, one thing, like some of y'all, like the one thing I don't want my kid to be is like a stripper. Like I'll fail, right? Like, like just keep my baby off the pole. The one thing that I don't want to do is be a pastor. That was like one failure in life is like if somehow I end up being a pastor. Because my dad was a pastor and his dad was a pastor and my mom's dad was a pastor. And I was like, yo, man, I got to break this cycle. This is a generational problem. I'm going to run as far as I can. And it didn't work out for Jonah, and it didn't work out for me. I don't get no choice. When God calls you, he calls you. Your life isn't your own. That's what submission to Jesus meant. Stop telling God where you want to live and what politics you want around in your life and how much money you should have and how close your family should be or how far away or how easy life should be. I mean, just get, get out of here with that. That's, that's ridiculous. I don't give a rip how nice Texas or, or Kentucky or Seattle is. Where did God call you? That's, that's the only question for a believer. It's not how red or blue is the state or how, how cheap is the gas. I, I who cares? That's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Where'd God call you? Where'd God call you? That's it. That's the question. Where'd God call me? Because my life's not my own. Listen, you don't, I don't want me in charge. I know what I'm capable of. None of it's good. You, you think you want to be in charge, but if we're being really honest, you have screwed this up enough times that at some point you realize too, you don't want to be in charge. So stop trying to grab the wheel from the Holy Spirit and yanking on it and let him drive. We are called to walk in this ordinary Christian life 
It's a walk. It's not a run. It's not a sprint. Spiritual transformation and maturity takes time, guys. We, we, we're crockpots, not microwaves. You, do you understand what I'm saying about spiritual maturity? Like nobody, nobody wakes up, very few people wake up, and, and a week later, they're just like Jesus. If you've met new Christians, man, it is rough. Now, here's what happens in a crock pot. Low heat for a long period of time makes some delicious pulled pork. <laughs> right? Now, you take a frozen chunk of pork out of the freezer, put it in a microwave, set 10 minutes on high, you know what you're going to have? A mess! You can have a mess! You can have a fire! <laughs> You're going to blow your microwave up or you're going to have a brick of charcoal. And that is really how spiritual transformation happens too. If we want growth, it's the right temperature. It's the right environment slowly over a long period of time that tenderizes and changes our hearts to be more and more like Jesus. And you try to rush that and let me just tell you, you're going to have a mess on your hands. Maybe a brick of coal. Instead, instead, and we've used this uh, illustration a bunch, our job is to, over time, slowly metabolize the gospel. Metabolize the gospel. What does that mean? We're letting it sink in over and over again until we can figure out how to digest the truths of God, and those, over time, change us. And it takes time, and it's slow, and it's not as fast as we want it to be. Trust me. It's not as fast for you as I want it to be. It's not. It takes time. Long periods of time. Now, the walk of the Christian life, the ordinary pursuit of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to have two primary themes that we're going to spend two or three different sermon series just walking through. One is unity and one is purity. One is unity and one is purity. But there's three things that we're going to see about the walk that I want you to take out of here today. And the first is this. The walk is work. It's hard. The walk is hard. Even though it's only one step at a time, it, it, it's hard. Because we have this intense desire to be comfortable. And as God calls us to take a step, each step that he takes us in pursuit of him always matches Luke 9, 23, where we're dying to ourselves and we're picking up our cross, which is the instrument of our death and following Jesus. And so none of that sounds like Luke 9, 24, which is pick up my couch, get some stuff and watch it while I sit down and get comfortable. But we want comfort. A.W. Tozer would say that complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. I would tell you that it is impossible for you to experience spiritual growth while you're comfortable. Which means that anytime you're comfortable, every red flag and alarm bell should be going off. Because it means I won't grow. Because I only grow when things get uncomfortable because if I didn't need to change, I'd already be like Jesus. And if you think you're like Jesus, you come over, we'll see if you can walk across the pool. 
we're never going to get there. There's going to be always things in our life that the Spirit has to root out in order to mature us and change us. And so there, there, there's just this constant need to be uncomfortable, to allow the Spirit to convict, to encourage, to change, to rub off, for iron to sharpen iron, for us to... to here's what I'm saying to you. you. It's a walk. It takes effort and work, and it's hard. Brene Brown would say, you, you can't have courage and comfort. You can only choose one. You can't plop. Okay, that, the, the American Christian thing is the plop. Like we get in somewhere and we, and we just plop down on a pew and we say, entertain me, pastor. I'll give you 90 minutes of my attention. Make it good though and get it done before the football game. But plopping is just not a biblical concept. That, that, just, the, just the mere fact that the American church we don't have 100% of our congregations serving in ministries is insanity. The fact that the number is like 25 to 30% of the congregation actually uses their spiritual gifts to serve the body is nuts because you open up the Bible and you can't even find a member of the body that's not using their spiritual gifts to serve. And so somehow in this American institution, we've we got this idea of plopping where we come in, we plop, we're entertained, and then we go on our way, and then we wonder why we feel empty all week. Because that's not what you're designed to do. He put his spirit in you. Listen, I'm glad that his spirit is making you uncomfortable and empty when you're plopping. It's the wake-up call to get back to walking and take another step. The walk is work, the walk is not a run, it's slow. Man, it's slow, it's tough. There's gonna be times in the walk of the pursuit of Jesus Christ where you aren't sure that you've grown a bit and it's been a year, year and a half and you're like, man, I am not any closer to Jesus. And it's one of the reasons we have to do this together. It's one of the reasons that the Bible would tell us to outdo one another in showing honor to each other is that I get to see Christ changing you and then I get to not be silent about it, but actually go to you and say, man, I just want to honor you because I see Christ in you and I see the impact that he's having on you and I see how your personality has and your demeanor has changed because of what Christ is doing. I just want to encourage you and you may have thought, man, I hadn't moved at all and we see it and so we gather together to encourage each other to go, hey, it's still happening. I know it doesn't look like it, but if you could look in your rearview mirror and see where you were a year ago, you'd realize that you love Jesus a lot more now. And you've impacted people because of that. That's why you, the church is indispensable from the Christian life. You, you don't get to do this pursuit of Christ on your own and be like, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Who said you had to like him? We said you had to love him. Listen, if church was only people that were just like you that you already liked, where's the uncomfortability in that? Where's the growth in that? You already like people like you because you think you're already there. No? The thing that you don't like about the person who's different from you is because it might invalidate who you are. You thought you'd already made it. 
We sit in pews next to people who are different than us so that we are forced to love people that are different from us, forced to honor people that are different than us, forced to encourage people that are different than us, forced to weep with people when they're different than us and they're going through something and we, we've got to learn how what empathy looks like as the Spirit moves in us and connects us and, and unifies us together with other people so that we can actually grow. You get into a homogenous environment where everybody's the same, you're gonna plop your little rear end down and you're gonna unplop it at the end of service, you're gonna move on and stagnate. And then wonder why life feels empty. The walk is work, the walk is not a run, and the walk is my legacy. And I'm gonna end on this. I I don't know if you've ever spent any time doing this, um, but at different seasons in my life, I'm really captivated by this idea of legacy. And what I mean by that is someday, uh, if Jesus hasn't come again, we're all going to die. And when we die, someone's going to write your obituary. And I don't know if you know this or not, but obituary is the one thing that you actually don't get to write about yourself. You're not there. The obituary is written by what other people have seen evidenced in your life. And I began to really think years ago about, man, what, what is it I really want to be known for? What do I want my legacy to be? What, are, what, are, what would I want my obituary to say if I got to write it? What do I, what do I want to be perceived at? Is, do I want to be perceived as a good dad, uh, a patriot, uh, a good neighbor, I, you know, I cut my lawn on time, uh, a good worker, a guy who had a lot of toys and RVs, a guy who retired or like, what, what's my legacy? And I wrote this down, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. If I could write it myself. Daniel was a man who knew he needed God. He wasn't particularly talented or particularly smart. Certainly wasn't very tall. He wasn't very consistent. And he had a penchant for sticking his foot in his mouth. But when God called, he obeyed with a passion and an urgency previously unknown to mankind. He chased God like nothing else mattered and he desperately wanted Jesus. That's my goal. That's my goal. I want to be taking steps forward in the Christian faith until the day that last step is right into the grave. There's no concept of retirement in the Bible. There's no point where you get to plop. We work till Jesus takes us home. What do you want your legacy to be when you go home? What do you want it to be? Because your walk is your legacy. Everybody can talk the talk, but you only actually believe the parts of the Bible that you live out. And the rest of it's lip service. And what I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking you to consider as we go through this series in Ephesians 4, and we get all of these imperatives of things that we should do, What I'm asking you to consider is what is your legacy and are you willing to walk? Because it's what we're doing here. 
That's what church is. It's a walk. We just do it together so we can be encouraged when it gets tough because it's going to be tough. And so we can encourage one another when we don't think that we're actually getting any steps forward. You ever felt like life is one step forward and three steps back? And you need people around you to remind you that you're not who you used to be. Will you walk with us? Because we're going to spend the next few months as we go through Ephesians looking at the walk as a church and trying to identify in, in each of our lives what a next step looks like. I would submit to you in our church, there are some easy next steps. If you're brand new here, you're just checking this out, we're going to have this thing called starting point over in the room here after service. That's a great next step. We have a goal to have more people in community groups in our church than we actually have on Sunday morning. Because we know that spiritual growth happens best in environments that are intimate, small. So preaching the word is a biblical mandate and it's good and we want to get re-gospeled every Sunday to go back out into a dark world. But, but real change happens when I get into a small enough group of Jesus believers that I can be vulnerable and genuine and I can actually let them know what's going on in my life and I can take the veneer off of this weird cultural Christianity that never, everything's always going good, brother, and I don't struggle with anything. And we all know you're lying through your teeth anyways. What's the A.W. Tozer says? Christians don't tell lies. They just come sing them on Sunday morning. You get into that small environment where you, you do life with people and they can call you on your stuff and encourage you when you're down and they know what's going on in your life. And, and listen, the reason that that's uncomfortable and awkward and no one wants to do it is then we might be known. And, and all those Instagram phony posts, they ain't going to cut it anymore when real life starts to happen. So maybe the next step for you is to get into a community group and be known. Maybe it's to serve. Maybe you haven't put your spiritual gifts to use for the edification of the body at all, and they're just trapped inside you. And man, I got to tell you, you were created, called to life to serve. The idea of plopping and not using that gift is insanity. I'm just going to read you this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and then uh, Pastor Mark's going to come up and do uh, communion with us. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor in Germany, uh, left Germany during the rise of Hitler and the start of the war, and then realized with great conviction that he would be needed uh, back in Germany to basically be a voice of dissent against Hitler and Nazi Germany and pastor people through the midst of this thing, even though it would cost him his life, and he, he knew it probably would, and it did. Uh, he said this about the church. The community of saints is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women where there is no need of further repentance. No, it is a community which proves that it is worthy of the gospel of forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness. Sanctification means driving out the world from the church as well as separating the church from the world. But the purpose of such discipline is not to establish a community of the perfect, but a community consisting of men who really live under the forgiving mercy of God. Will you walk with us? Will you walk with us? Let me pray for us. Father God, uh, we thank you for your son and we thank you, God, for the church. As messy, as dysfunctional, as weird as the church can be, God, we, th we thank you for the beauty of redeeming us and transforming us together. 
knitting together a unity of believers, God, where the only thing that makes any sense of why we would spend so much time together is your son and your spirit. God, we thank you for the impact that you want to make on our world through Resurrection Church. I thank you, God, for the people that are here who are going to take a step forward in their pursuit of you today and a step forward on Tuesday and a step forward on Friday, God, and we're gonna do it together. God, I thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us in our mess, but you continue to transform us. God, we ask for your spirit uh, to be active in our lives and in our neighborhoods, God, in Jesus' name, amen.